Do you have a comment or question about anything said here on the podcast? Well, now you can tell us. We've got an official Twitter account. Just go to twitter.com and look for The MacGuffin Pod. And feel free to send us fun GIFs as well. We love that. And yes, I did just say GIFs and not GIFs. It's called The MacGuffin Report. Movies, TV, American culture. You in? From L.A., The MacGuffin Report. Produced by Inclusive Media. It's the Science Fiction Show, and I've been bugging producer Bruce to do this one for a long time. We're doing Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction show of all time. In my opinion, I think I can kind of objectively say this, really one of the big three English-language science fiction franchises, especially if you don't count superheroes. Um, I, I... you know, this is this is a game changer for me personally, but I'm going to hand it over to people who are slightly less fanatical about this show. So now, Rachel, I understand you have liked Doctor Who before this week. So I, I have liked Doctor Who before this week. So for <laughs> our American audience and well, just the uninitiated in general, Doctor Who is a time lord. This is an alien race. And he travels around in a blue police box. It's not a phone box. It's a police box. It's an old um, British institution that they no longer use. Um, That is, this police box is larger on the inside than it is on the outside. Um, So that's the kind of wacky stuff you're getting into. Uh, Doctor Who travels throughout space and time, usually with one or two companions from the human race. And they explore adventures in various times and spaces. Um, so do you feel like I covered that sufficiently? Not at all, but (laughs) I mean, I mean, there's, well, I I can, I can talk about this a bit later, but there is just so much to this show. I mean, there's There's a lot to it. Yes, absolutely. uh, The first episode of this show ran in 1963. It hasn't exactly been running continuously since then, but it's run pretty much continuously with about a, what, 15, 16 year gap. There are 851 episodes. Yes. And just to uh, give you an idea. Yeah, and I forget how many stories that works out to, but I think it's about 200 stories. It's kind of a serialized uh, show, so many episodes can make up one story. Uh, but again, I can talk about this more later. I'm dying to hear what Walter has to say about this. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Okay, it's, it's a British show, correct? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if it's because of the pr- British production value and me being used to uh, U.S. production value. It was way too campy for me. Um, which, I, which did you, what did you watch? I watched the pilot of the 2015. Yeah, 2005? Five, okay. five, yeah. I knew there was a five in there and a two and a zero. <laughs> I just didn't know how many zeros. Uh, yeah, like I, okay, self-admittedly right now, I love, do you remember the old cartoons where it'd be in a desert and then there's like one little like teepee, it's not a teepee, but like the little kind of small little tent and then the, the cartoon character goes inside and it's like this huge like mansion mm. and then the cartoon character is like what the heck and it goes back out and his neck stretches around the entire uh tent and it's like looking around like no way and then they go back and he goes back inside and it's like this huge mansion so i actually love that concept of the police box how when they go in it's just this whole other like thing inside i actually i love that thing so that really drew me in when, once they got into the police box which didn't happen till like uh I think, what 15 20 minutes in or something uh, for me, it was just it was just way too campy. It felt like remember that show, uh, Land of the Lost. 
Yeah, oh, you should. it felt that campy to me. It, even though I know it's not comparable the two, but it just felt very campy to me. Uh, however, uh, I, I I do think though that if I bought in, like, if I could overlook the campiness, that is something I would watch because it felt very much like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm. where it felt like every episode there's a monster and they've got to get rid of the monster. Yeah. And then the in the pilot episode it happened to be plastic or like plastic. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. yeah whatever. Living yeah. plastic. Yeah. 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 So it, it felt very much like that. Um, there was a couple of things I didn't really, uh, that didn't track well for me. Like, I don't know how, how well you guys remember the pilot, but uh, when the girl, it was, it was kind of understood that her boyfriend died. She was still smiling and like, you know, being very playful. She and was I thought, over him very quickly. Yeah, she got over him really fast. quickly. Which I I, th- I guess they kind of set Rose up. We're talking about yeah. this is Eccleston's doctor that we're watching. Yes, and, and they they kind of they kind of address that like when they show them in the beginning, uh, the boyfriend and her, where she, he like he wants to kiss her, but she's just like uh, like you can see she's a little uninterested or less interested than he is. So they kind of like touch on that, but um, but she's a little too like happy go lucky uh, after uh, realize or thinking that her boyfriend died. Um, so that was just that was just a little off for me. But other than that, I, I think I do know though. If I kept watching it, I got over the campiness. That is something I would watch, and I would. That's a show. It's a type of show that I would leave on, uh, in the background, and like just have it on. And especially now knowing that there's 800 some odd episodes, that's totally a, a show that I would just leave on, and like I can just look at, and then like not really focus on, and then come back to. Um, but yeah, having said that, for me the show is just like, eh, it's not really my cup of tea. But I can definitely, but I do see though how I could get into it uh, if I got over the production value. Okay, I may be biased, but <laughs> you think? So wait, 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 the doctor you, yeah. and the doctor I would have never guessed that. I'm geared up. Uh, I may be biased, but I uh, I believe that Doctor Who is really, in a lot of ways, it's the ultimate TV show. I mean, because the format is so flexible. I mean, the, it started off in the 60s as a kid show. Multicam, right? too. Well, what, two cams? <laughs> they were, it's they, more than one. <laughs> they, were, they were doing it for super low budget. It's on um, a soundstage, yeah. Yeah, very important that, you know, this is the first uh, woman to be given uh, producer credit on a BBC show was this, Doctor yeah. Who. There's a great um, drama like about this. Yes, The Adventure in Time and Space. I'm glad you brought that up. I yes, there's it. a very good movie about the making of the early Doctor Who's and the first Doctor played by William Hartnell. Um, but... As I was getting back to, the format becomes so flexible, okay? The first show in 1963 was set mostly in a school and in the wonderful TARDIS, the time machine that's bigger on the inside. The second three episodes were set in the caveman days. 100,000 BC was the loose name of that series. And then after that, of course, was the introduction of the Daleks, one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest um, science fiction aliens ever in pop culture. I mean, for me, they're right up there with uh, the aliens in Alien and uh, the triples from Star Trek because these three aliens, you can't tell it's a guy in a suit, right? You forget 
that yeah. that's actually like not an alien. You know, uh, the Daleks are super effective. And if you watch the adventure in space and time, it really drives home the fact that this is what captured the public's imagination in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, they were sort of symbolic of Nazi stormtroopers and stuff, you know, going around. Their, their calling card is exterminate, you know. As though yeah, you had kids dressing up like Daleks. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just... I mean, this was, I mean, Doctor Who was to Britain what Star Wars was to America and really the world, honestly. But at the time, you know, because it just broke and then every kid wanted to be Doctor Who. Every kid wanted to be, you know, on that show or wanted to watch that show. It just instantly took off. And the thing is, like, with this format, you can do comedies, you can do histories, you can do science fiction, you can do, there were a couple of episodes uh recently with the Matt Smith doctor um, where he was hanging out with James Corden and his girlfriend. You know, that was the episode. Yeah, I love some of those. <laughs> There's yeah, I horror mean, even. Yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, you can do horror episodes. There was one episode with Peter Capaldi as the doctor where it was basically a monologue. The whole show was just him talking. <laughs> you know, there was some stuff going on, but it was mostly just him and his thoughts and like this. And that's the things. The show is infinitely flexible. The other nice thing about the show is this concept of regeneration, which is when the main character dies. Um, he actually does die on the show, but Spoiler alert. <laughs> he, he spontaneously grows this new body. And so a new actor can take over the part. And, and in my opinion, only a great theater culture would have ever come up with this idea. I mean, just to have, I mean, it's almost as though the doctor becomes like a Hamlet. You know, he becomes like that character who's on the page, but then every actor can bring their own things to it, right? They bring their own personality and they bring their own outrageous clothing every time, which is another trademark of the show. Now, most recently, Doctor Who is very big news everywhere because for the first time in 60 years or whatnot, uh, the doctor is now being played by a woman. And uh, we've done one series of that. We're waiting for the second one that's going to come out in about January. But I was very interested to hear from you, Rachel, what you think, because oh, you're no. kind of a Who fan. I forgot fan. to watch a Jodie Whittaker episode. You haven't seen no, any I of haven't. the Jodie Whittakers. No. Wow. No, I forgot. It wasn't, in, it wasn't in our show notes, so no. I totally forgot. Okay, well, you should watch them because I'd really like to hear what you think personally. Um, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to give a spoiler here and I'm going to give kind of a controversial opinion and I did not think this season was very good unfortunately. Um the new showrunner and the showrunner is always very important on Doctor Who because the showrunner plays and almost they're writing most of the scripts for the season. They're they're playing sort of a script editor role as well. They've got to get that main story arc, which is so important these days. They're the ones controlling that. They do even some of the casting and things like that. So it's a much broader role than in American TV. And so a new showrunner took over the show, and he is the guy who did um, Broadchurch. Oh, okay. Was this series? Now this series, it's usually um, like somebody like Russell T Davies, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the third showrunner in the reboot. Um, this is um, a series that was on BBC. It was highly acclaimed. Uh, it's now on Netflix. Um, it's a really gorgeous drama series. And so, the new Doctor Who looks like that, but it's just not as action packed as mm. the old Doctor Who. So I'm hoping that's just a growing pains thing, and we can get into the second season. Jodie Whittaker's take on the Doctor, though, is is pretty seamless. Everybody thought it would be a big deal to have a woman playing this part, but 
it's been pretty seamless. They haven't been too outrageous with the, oh my God, it's the nurse, you know, and making, <laughs> making kooky boob oh jokes or anything like that. <laughs> so, which I was really afraid of, but, um, definitely. They're not, they're not Star Wars fans. And that's oh, why. <laughs> oh yes. I, I'm supposed to pass this over, but I just wanted to get one other point across. And this is one thing that makes Doctor Who special. And that I believe will never, ever, ever be done again. And that's this. You are thrown into this show in 1963, not knowing anything about this character at all, except he has a granddaughter. Maybe. Maybe. Possibly his granddaughter. Right. Might not actually be his granddaughter. not even sure. Okay. To this day, we know very little more about him. It was 12 years before we found out the name of his planet. Okay, it was 42 years before we saw a flashback to his childhood. Okay, we still don't know if this guy ever had a wife or this woman now ever had a wife. Well, there's River Song. Where's the grand? (laughs) God, see that the and what's great about that? What's great about not having that backstory is that through the years, they've piled on all this wonderful stuff to the show and. Once or twice a year, you get that moment where it's revealed something about this character that we don't know anything about. And it's really makes for a magic moment. One of the best things recently that they did with this retconning, it's the ultimate retcon show now. One of the things that they do this retcon that I thought was really interesting is the theme song, which is one of the most you know, well-known theme songs in TV. Um, it has this backbeat, right? It goes dun, 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 like that, right? Mm-hmm. And they recently revealed that the reason why that's in the song is because it's the heartbeat of a Time Lord. A Time Lord, of course, famously has two hearts, like the Doctor has. And that's the heartbeat of a Time Lord in that song. Now, of course, in 1963, when they wrote the song, they were thinking say, that. There is a fine line between something like that and what J.K. Rowling does with her spontaneous facts about Harry Potter characters long after the books are published. Well, she, okay, now, now, if you're talking about the Dumbledore thing, she claimed that that was part of the backstory all along. But I, I am not claiming at all that this is no, what, no, no. Yeah, what yeah. they intended in 63. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that it's wonderful that you can do that. This history is so rich, and yet there's still so much unknown that you can call back. You can do crazy things like that all the time, and the fans just eat this up. It's what makes the show a, a living show. You know, it, it keeps it vital. You know, it's really a great... If you have not seen Doctor Who yet, give it a shot. There's got to be something you like here. If there's 40 seasons, 45 <laughs> seasons of a thing, you know? There's got to be something you like. So I, I highly recommend this show, of course. Yeah, and um, if, you're, if you're not sure about it, if you're a fan of Sherlock, maybe you can start with an episode by uh, Mark Gatiss, who is the writer of the BBC Sherlock series, and then go in from that. It's route. always it's always good to start with one of the doctors. Yes, yes. Just take one. Get attached Just, to a yeah, doctor. Get the loopy first episode because after they regenerate, it's like being born. So they're very loopy and trippy. Still trying and, to figure it out. Yeah, not sure what they're doing and whatnot. Like so. the actor. Yeah, take one. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't blame them, though. You're tossed into this right. very iconic role, and you're expected to make something great out to of make it, it new. immediately. Right. Like, you're riding on the shoulders of, like, giants like David Tennant. Right, right. Um, so this was actually my, despite being, like, a, a, a short-time Whovian, I guess this is my first time watching anything of Eccleston's Doctor 
the ninth doctor. Oh, this is the ninth in the it. of 13 regenerations that we get. And right now we're on the 13th one. This is the last one. So they better make the best of it or find some. Oh, no, 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 no. They've already cleared that up. Yeah. They've already cleared. They that have. Up. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They gave they gave Peter Capaldi a whole new set. Or, or Matt Smith. They gave him a whole new set of regenerations. So. I totally missed that. So now that. he has like 25 bodies or whatever. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about all this. See, Redcon. Yeah, I have to, <laughs> I have to go be my myself now and <laughs> emotionally understand this. Um, I really liked Eccleston. I, um, oh, he's I, great. I understand. Some of my friends, he's their favorite doctor. And I was like, how can you top? I'm a Matt Smith fan because he was the first doctor I watched and he just automatically like latched on to that. But like after watching Eccleston, I was like, this is great too. Uh-oh, got some competition, Matt Smith. I thought that uh, it was, let's see, I talked about this a lot with my boyfriend. So I feel like most, a lot of this info is going to come from him because he is like a Whovian from childhood. Um, and I don't know anybody that knows more about Doctor Who. <laughs> um, me i do <laughs> you guys should go head to head we'll have yeah, a trivia yeah, show we really should. yeah we yeah really like should. he was just pulling stuff i love out the and, challenge like uh, we doctor who like, trivia sounds right god now. awful <laughs> oh my god i'm sure there are and it goes on forever too dude. it goes on i'm forever. sure there are podcasts just about like <laughs> doctor who trivia not even like the show just trivia about doctor <laughs> who um gosh. i might rather watch roma Maybe. No. no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Ooh, are you sure? <laughs> no, 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 no. Playing some big cards there, Walter. <laughs> that was dangerous. I was. I'd rather watch Doctor you. Who backwards. I think that's. I don't know. For you, that that would probably still be better than Roma. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> at least it's in color. Yeah. <laughs> um. Gosh, I don't even know where to start because there's so. Much. There's so much here. Yeah. There's so exactly. much. Yeah. Um. So well, yes, I liked Eccleston. Uh, this is my. It's not my first time watching anything with Rose or Billy Piper's Rose in it because I've seen some episodes of her with um, Ten or David Tennant. Um, Fun fact, she is a teen pop star or teen pop idol, was a teen pop idol in the UK. So bringing her on was like a huge thing for the uh, reboot of the series because like you said, there was a huge gap in between eight and nine basically where you like Doctor Who fans were just, you know, yeah, the they show, weren't sure if they were going to get more. The show went off the air in 1989 and then in the mid 90s um Fox threw some money behind a TV movie uh that was supposed to reboot the show in America. Okay? So the TV movie was made with uh Paul McGann who at that time was a very hot young British actor. He was in With Nail and I, if you ever saw that, and a few other things you might have seen. But he, uh, and, and the, you know, the TV movie did okay in Britain, but it did like zip in America. And the TV movie is really incomprehensible to somebody who doesn't know the show. How so long, it was, how, what was the runtime? Do you remember? It was pretty much an hour and a half. Okay. Yeah, but okay. but they they throw it was it was the exact reverse of what you should do with Doctor Who. If you saw the 2005, you guys both saw the 2005. So again, they start you with nothing. Yeah. Right. That was the that's why Rose works so well. That's why yeah. the first one works so well. But with the TV movie, I mean, you're supposed to already know everything oh. behind it. You know, Actually, like like they show the old doctor and then they show him regenerating at the beginning. And oh you're going dear. like, what the hell no. is going on here? You know, you have no idea what's happening. So so from 96 to two, no, from 89 to 2005, it was off the air. 
And I was crushed, and I probably would have, you know, slipped my wrists if uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation hadn't debuted in 1987. <laughs> Dramatic much? <laughs> um, so, fun fact: in the late 90s, actually, Doctor Who made up half of BBC's total merchandising revenue, despite having been off the air for a decade. That is the cultural impact of um, Doctor Who. Insane, right? That's nuts. <laughs> It's absolutely bonkers. Another fun fact, in the earliest days, Doctor Who, like most BBC TV, was actually disposable. So they shot it cheaply, as you notice, mm-hmm. and they kind of keep up the tradition. There's a there's a tradition of campiness that they uh. keep in there. They have the ability to make it, you know, edgier and more realistic and everything, but it's, that's just kind of not in the spirit of Doctor Who. Like, Doctor Who is, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, it's. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like soccer here in the U.S. Like in in Britain, every kid grows up watching Doctor Who, and as you get older, like some some adults stick with it, mm-hmm. but you know for the most part, it's like oh yeah, that was my childhood, and sometimes they leave it at that. But yeah, early Doctor Who was disposable, and they didn't really expect it to be broadcast more than once, so they would just tape over old episodes. So we have about oh, wow. <laughs> we have about about ninety seven early Doctor Who episodes just totally missing yeah. or taped over. Wow. Gone forever. Yeah, yeah from the 60s. Ephemeral. Uh, there's a whole bunch <laughs> of stories missing. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, that is more than the total episode count of Star Trek's original series, which is 79 episodes. However, however, they are doing some interesting things. What they're doing nowadays, they've, there's been a big call ever since the 50th, which was in 2013. Um, what they're doing is because, and here's the weird thing, the BBC, what they used to do in those days is they also did a purely audio recording. Yes. And those, for some reason, have been saved. So lately, they've been doing a lot of animated episodes, mm. right? They just yes, take right. the old soundtrack, they take the scripts, which still exist, and then they like they do it in more or less the style that it would be done, which is kind of like negative because I wish <laughs> now that they have the budget, why don't they make it a little bit, yeah. you know, more a, intense, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's just like more special effects and whatnot. But I was actually going to say this before, um, part of the campiness and whatnot is because look, this show has always had one thing. It used to be very low budget, but it's always had one thing, good writers. Right. And that's the thing. This show is one of the few shows I know that still says, you know, Doctor Who starring so and so episode title by mm-hmm. like the writer yeah. is shown before the episode starts, you know, and there's not that many shows that do that nowadays. And it's because that's always been at the heart of Doctor Who. I mean, they used to be doing these things. Oh, what, like the joke is they used to be doing these things on 20 pounds an episode in the 60s. And that included lunch. Or whatever, you know, I mean, but the, the point is, is that it's a tiny little studio with nothing except creativity, you know, nothing except the words, and, you know, they're like really working hard for this in the early days. And so I think that's why today there's still this sort of jokey thing about it. In my opinion, you know, again, I've, I've always said it's a flexible format. I think Doctor Who is at its best when they're doing absolutely typical science fiction. Right? They should be doing the biggest cliche science fiction stories, history stories you can think of, right? Except you throw in this random dude, right? Mm-hmm. To me, that's always why I was at its best, right? And they put and, a fun spin on it too. Yeah, in the seventies, it was at its height because when most people, when most older people think of this show, they think of Tom Baker, mm-hmm. guy who played the Fourth Doctor. Even today, people will still talk about the scarf. You know, he was oh, wait, uh, Colin Baker. 
No, Tom Baker. Tom Baker. Famous okay. for wearing for the 20 to... famous for wearing the 20 foot scarf. Uh, this guy was on the show for 7 years. The, he is what broke it into America. Americans love this guy. I mean, he's just really made this madcap doctor or whatever. Every show he did was like this. You'd have the cliche show about Mars. You'd have the cliche show about a moon base. You'd have this cliche show about a space station. And then this wacky guy with this big long scarf and a hat came in, start offering people jelly babies. You know, start offering people candy and stuff like this. That's when it's at its best. Is you know when it twists the the, the what you expect just a little bit. And it's one of the few shows that can really do that on a consistent basis. Oh, yeah. Speaking, I was going to mention, you mentioned that Doctor Who is very flexible in format. There are actually over 300 radio episodes. You can find Mm -hmm. this on The Big Finish. Those are pretty great. I've personally, uh, I've only listened to one. uh, I think it's a two-parter. It was called The Chimes of, help me here, Oz. The Chimes Chimes of of Big Ben? Hmm? Was it The Chimes of Big Ben? No. It was a Christmas special. Oh, right. Um, It was scary. I listened to it on a plane. Oh. Yeah, I forget the name of that one. I'm not that up on the radio drama. My boyfriend I've is going to cry. Say. I'm sorry. Sorry <laughs> about that one. Um, I'm not that high up on the dramas. Books. 560 oh, books. Jeez, zillions. 560. I thought yeah. there were a lot of Star Wars books. Well, this is how it kept going. <laughs> yeah. This is how it kept going from 89 to 2005, right? I mean, they still had the uh, BBC still had the rights and they had a publishing wing as well so they would produce the books and stuff and you know it's like rachel said they were making millions of pounds off merchandising even when the show wasn't on and so they had like guys who were working on the tv show when it got canceled in the late 80s went and wrote the books and they like planned it out you know Mm -hmm. they they because what happened what doctor who missed out on in the late 80s was the continuity thing and I mean, I know I talk about it all the time, but Next Generation was really the first show that, that did this, right? They had a continuing storyline where you could have one episode by itself, but there were these parts that would continue on. And now all TV is like that, right? But this was the thing that Doctor Who missed out on. Is like, just when that was beginning to develop, the story arc, the big bad, yeah. principles like this that we take for granted, that's when it got canceled. And so they had to do this stuff in the books and on BBC radio and stuff like that in the 90s when it wasn't on the TV. But again, it's such a strong cultural force that just like Star Trek when it was off the air, just like Star Wars in the 80s and 90s before the prequels came out, all this original material is still coming out. And some of it's even getting into the mainstream and people are paying attention to it. That's a truly iconic, I think, franchise is one that refuses to die. Just refuses to die, yeah. I mean, there's just so much inch. And that's the nice thing about the new Star Treks and the new Doctor Whos these days, and even to some extent the new Star Wars is, is that now you're getting the generation of zombies, right? You're getting the generation of fans of this show. Right. And, and it brings this whole new enthusiasm to the show. I mean, Russell Davies uh, grew up again, like loving Doctor Who. And he became the show producer. I mean, that was like his goal in life, I'm sure. He won't admit it, but I bet it is. And, you know, same with the other two showrunners is that they were fans when they were kids. And yeah. this adds a whole new dimension to these franchises, you know, that, that you don't see in some other franchises. Like, for example, Superman, Batman. 
Yeah, exactly. Gosh, I am realizing I didn't even really talk about the episode that we watched. Well, we watched, some of us watched three episodes, like the first three of Eccleston. I did anyway. Um, I'll just, we'll just talk about the uh, first episode. This episode's called Rose. Um, basically, episode is pretty genius while the, the plot is fairly weak, which is, you know, fine. But like what they do, I think, in terms of bringing in new fans, but also the old fans is pretty smart. Um, so they, this is the doctor's new regeneration, but they don't bring in the former doctor, so they don't confuse the new fans because the old fans knows what's going on. But for new people, it's like, here's this stranger that we don't know about, and that's exactly Rose's point of view. So they give you Rose, a new companion, so that new fans can follow along. The way they introduced the TARDIS gave me chills. They don't show the TARDIS at all, like the first time you hear it. You just, you're, you're exactly in the same spot that Rose is. She hears it first, looks around, decides to run back, and it's gone. And it's that, for Doctor Who fans, you'll know the, the TARDIS sound is iconic. Right. And the way they cut that scene where, you know, Eccleston is walking towards the box, she leaves, and they introduce the sound of the TARDIS um, fading out. It's just, it gave me chills. It gave me chills, and I'm like I'm like a baby Whovian too. So I can't imagine what it must have felt like in 2005. 2005, yeah, for the for old fans, yeah, OG fans to yeah. like get that. Like it yeah. must have been like Walter. You were talking about the Batman symbol when you went to see Batman, yeah, yeah. And like they throw the bat signal up, and it was like whoa, like just insane, like a mind blowing experience. So there was that, and you know, it's yeah, the new viewers are confused, but it's like, it gives you this mysterious like introduction to both the Doctor and to the TARDIS. Um, and then the nesting consciousness that is the uh, the plastic, basically, appears in um, appeared in a prior episode of Doctor Who. So more fan service. Yes, in, in the, the 70s. 70s. Yeah. Yeah, when so. plastic was horrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's... Seriously, when plastic could be scary. Yeah. Uh, they did a couple of really good episodes in the 70s um, where, you know, like plastic dolls are coming to life and strangling people to death. And of course, the effects are brutally bad. <laughs> but I mean, it was just this really interesting, you know, again, it was like the writing saves it. You know, it's just this interesting story about I plastic. Mean, yeah. And the idea is scary. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. That carries it on its own. Everything <laughs> is plastic, right? Mannequins You're surrounded by yeah. stuff that you can kill you. You can't get away yeah. from it. Right. Exactly. That great line that I think Rose says about um, people's boobs. People's <laughs> boobs are going <laughs> to. Attack. Oh, that's right, because there's too much plastic. Yeah, because there's too much plastic. <laughs> oh my. But I then, totally missed But then I was that. thinking, like, but, but, but fake boobs are either saline or silicone. But then I remember, like, back then, plastic surgery, plastic they just surgeon. thought it was plastic. They didn't yeah. Yeah. really consider it silicone. Yeah. Um, so a couple more fun facts about this particular episode. So Russell T. Davies um, actually had intended for Rose's character to be more mature than the previous companions, who, you know, the first one was a kid. So we're, you know, we're showing her, even though she's living at home, like they, she has a job, a steady boyfriend and everything. They want to show her as an adult. And that was kind of new in uh, the Doctor Who world. But he got really pissed off because one of the props people had left like a cuddly, like stuffed animal, like in the, in her bedroom, like a prop. And like, he's watching it later and he gets pissed off and he's like, no, she's supposed to be more like a more mature version of the companion. And that just completely ruined it for him. Um, (laughs) And apparently the very first time this episode aired ever, there was a bungle in the beginning because they're shooting, you know, it opens up in uh, kind of like the, it's like a a department store where Rose works. She's Mm -hmm. going down into the basement where the mannequins are. And 
suddenly you hear Graham Norton's voice coming on to announce Strictly Come Dancing. Somebody that was operating, like, the audiovisual had just started the queue, apparently, and everybody was seeing this and hearing it at the same time, so totally ruined. But, I mean, they got out of it. They walked it off. (laughs) They did. They did. I heard that the original cast for this part, for the Chris Eccleston part, was um, Hugh Grant. I heard what? they wanted, yeah, I heard they wanted to give it to Hugh Grant, That's which probably would have been bad because it's like you were talking about on a previous episode how you know it would almost like leave the it almost leave the screen. That's almost too big yeah. an actor to play. I mean, That's Chris, so funny. My brother describes Hugh Grant as handsome Mr. Bean because basically what he does, Hugh Grant, is he just bungles around oh, yeah. on yeah. on set, and yeah. we love it. He's British He's, Woody Allen, or um um um, um he got like ten years better out looking. of that. That um um yeah well Which, um 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 you know that's it's amazing guy. though that he got cast because they they being like casting directors and producers they don't like actors to do that mm-hmm. that's not something they teach you don't you don't, you don't do the uh, right, at right. An, yeah at an acting studio that I was at for training like we had to pay a quarter every time <laughs> you did um, uh uh yeah like and just. They don't. They don't like that. And so the fact that he got famous and popular yeah. for that is kind of Bill Nye you know, too. Not Bill Nye the Science Guy. The other Bill Nye, British Bill Nye, which, with the long hair that's kind of like. Oh, he was in the replacements. Skinny. I think so. Yeah. 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 He, he was in the classic movie Doom. He's a little scary looking. Rock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little scary yeah. looking, but oh he plays God. a really great father-in-law in About Time. The classic movie. He's yeah. Yeah. Very, Doom he very with much the rock. like plays the whole uh uh doesn't know what he's gonna say next yeah thing up and it works for him he was in Notting hill yeah with the, other, with the with the other handsome guy with, with the, the other stutterer yeah, yeah. Right. but in any case uh going down the rabbit hole coming back up now uh i think i think chris eccleston in my opinion was probably the best actor to this point to play this part oh. um after that it he was, was great capaldi is pretty awesome too. I mean, he's won BAFTAs. He he won an Oscar actually for writing, but that's another story. Um, but I think part of the key to Doctor Who, I think the most successful doctors, like Tom Baker is one, Matt Smith is another one, are those who disappear into the part. Yeah. Right. They bring the, themselves to it. Right. One of the main problems with Doctor Who is that most of the time you're conscious that this is an actor playing a part. You know, again, it's like Olivier, Olivier playing Hamlet. Right. You're not thinking about the Hamlet. You're thinking about Olivier twisting it. Right. How he's doing it. Right. And that's one of the minuses of Doctor Who is it's become so big. You know, it's like Superman is every time somebody new plays Superman, you're aware that, oh, it's this guy playing Superman. You know, you can't you can never say, oh, it's Superman. You know, and very often Doctor Who fails from this. This is one of its failings is Mm. that, you know, very rarely. I mean, Tom Baker is the doctor. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so successful is that you can't separate those two things. Same with Matt Smith. They're not celebrity enough so that you you, you say, oh, he's playing a part. Um, But so 
In this case, yeah, Hugh Grant would have been a terrible That would have been so weird. Yeah, and then you never would have been able to go to David Tennant afterwards. No, no, no. Because that was the point is that Eccleston looks like a goofball and David Tennant is a dishy guy who got to be the romantic doctor. Apparently they wanted more out of uh, Chris Eccleston, but he just, he wasn't jiving with the production, with the crew. He didn't care for the comedy, which was funny because watching Rose, the episode Rose, he was great at the comedy. Oh, yeah. He did a great job. Armless. This is... He, yeah, he's he's fitting. It's he slips right into it, but you know he just it just wasn't his thing. Yeah, he's great. Stop the podcast. Hey, McGuffins, Rachel Wong here. Just wanted to let you know about Character Media, an Asian American magazine that covers everything Asian American, from celebrity profiles to podcast reviews. That's right. They did a nice little piece on the McGuffin Report, and you should go check out charactermedia.com. Take a look at the article about the McGuffin Report. And while you're there, check out the other Asian American stories that you can't find anywhere else. I think you'll like it. On with the show. Does sci-fi always end up either multiple universes or AI? See, I love, I love this question because if, if you had asked this in the 80s, it would have been, is every science fiction about spaceships? Because of Star Wars, right? Mm. These things just go in cycles. Yeah. I mean, right now, the science fiction geeks are claiming superheroes. So every science fiction movie is actually about superheroes nowadays. Superheroes, you know? humans, mutants. And, and of course, there are fads, right? Remember the big things hitting Earth fad? Deep Impact and Armageddon yeah. and all those movies? I mean, you get those. Sometimes you get, uh, there's a lot of zombie stuff out now. I'm a fan That's of the uh, Andromeda Strain fad. Sure. Small stuff. Look out for the small stuff that we can't see. <laughs> sure. In the, in, the, in the 90s, at one time, you had two space station shows at the same time, yeah. right? You had Dar- uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. Mm. Basically the same show at the same time. <laughs> I mean... Just like any other genre, I think fads come and go, you know, and I think just right now we're hitting a peak of this. But um, one of the best definitions of science fiction I ever read was, look, it's any story set in the future. So there you go. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything. Yeah. Right. It can be about it can be Gattaca. It can just be about gene manipulation. You know, it can be an alternate universe. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It can be anything. Bill and Ted. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> uh, do, so the question is, is do they have to include that or are they including that AI or the multiverse um, yeah I mean ashamedly my definition of science fiction is so hazy and even with Oz just saying about being said in the future um, yeah like if I, I that that I like that parameter because it's actually for me. Then it becomes a fine yeah. line, or not yeah. a fine line. It's it becomes a clear. direct, yeah, yeah. clear yeah. line of, of what science fiction is. Um, but yeah, I mean, AI is that's what like the goal is kind of of what everyone's trying to do, which I, I find troubling because you have all these socially awkward nerdy people programming the AI, <laughs> and so they're the ones programming these sex dolls who who will just always say yes because they don't know what a challenge is or how to overcome the challenge. I'll, I'll tell you what's more disturbing to me is. You know what the big fat in science fiction movies? We just have, uh, what is the Brad Pitt movie coming out? Oh, now? Astra? Yeah, Ad Astra. Ad Astra. Right? That's what scares me is that all the big science fiction movies from Interstellar on down are about humans leaving the Earth. Yeah. Right? Like, this is what we're thinking about we're, right now. We're giving not, up. Yeah, not cleaning up. <laughs> no, let's just, let's just haul ass out of here. Let's you get know, a let, new one. Let's move the whole planet, yeah. for example, <laughs> like, yeah, I'll, in, I'll, you know like in our other series. As, I mean, a, as a Korean... 
being Asian and an American because I was born here, I can explain why that is. Because U.S. medicine, and not only is the U.S. philosophy, culture is to handle symptoms. We're about symptomology. Yeah. We're not about the cause and the root of the problem, right. which is when you do Asian medicine, they, they look for the root of the problem. It's preventative healthcare. Yes, right. exactly. And it's symptomology. And so rather than fixing the earth right now, it's more exciting and sexy to find the new earth. Yeah. But see, for me, that's like a, a mini trend right now is, you know, shows about leaving the earth. Yeah. Contact was a bit ahead of its time in this way, but that was the same kind of thing. Yeah. Is that like, you know, aliens will redeem us, you know, you know, we will find, uh, you know, we will renew the planet by making a new one and stuff like this. Yeah. And to it's me, that's, out. that's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cop out. It's a cop out. Um, now, which is not to say I'm not looking forward to Ad Astra because oh, no, I, I, love Brad I love Brad Pitt and I love, you know, I'm a geek. So I'll, I'll definitely go see <laughs> that, but but to me, that's, I mean, AI, whatever. That's a pipe dream. That's a pipe dream by, you know, to get a date. Yeah. But yeah, so. a- AI, I think, is, is that's where, like, you know, because you have, even in Star Trek, you have computer or, like, uh, what, what was the, was it the 2001? Yeah. You had, it's called com- yeah. Oh, yeah. How. So AI is, is one thing that really sets us apart, I think, for the future. And now, even now, I mean, now currently we kind of have AI, kind of. But, it, you know, honestly, I know this sounds like kind of like what is it depraved but we're i i bet we're waiting on sex dolls because sex dolls uh right now they look very realistic and so as long as the ai catches up to the way they look oh, that's yeah, what we're gonna wait for uncanny valley dude there are uncanny yeah there's, valley, there, right? there are like three theories about ai that um elon musk quoted a I, I used to know what this writer's name was i can look it up later and put it in the show notes but like one of the theories about ai is that you know we're on the we're on the horizon. We're getting there. Another mm-hmm. one is like we'll never get there. And then the third one is they're already here, but they're hiding among us because the AI is so good already. Yeah, because Google's the one that has um, the the voice, the whatever I don't know what they call it, but it sounded too real. So then all these politicians got involved, and then Google said, "Okay, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're just going to have them sound robotic." Weird. Because they were able to order pizza, and the the people on the phone didn't know <laughs> that that was a regular person. And so that third theory so, you I just mean, with said the, with the robo calls, those things sound freaking like they always get like, oh, hang on. I dropped my headset. Yeah. Like that pisses me off. I, but it yeah. got me once. I was so mad at myself. It could, it could be real. <laughs> I was it, so it, mad at myself. They're already here. <laughs> and like, it wasn't, was it to this morning in Iran or oh, no, no, Saudi Arabia drones, like a hundred drones attacked their biggest oil, uh, whatever refinery or whatnot. They, they had weaponized drones, like a hundred of them or something. And so I'm just saying, Skynet. Walter, I think you need to take a stress pill and relax. <laughs> I'm telling you. you I know have what? full confidence the, the in company, the completion of the, this podcast. The company won't be called Skynet. It'll be like NetSky. Skype. Skype. Net. My answer, well, I kind of, I partially answered it already. I don't think it's just about uh, multi-universes or AI. Like, as Oz said, I feel like anything in the future kind of gives us a good... Um, good guide point for it but uh yeah my example with like andromeda strain it's about tiny things that have nothing to do with ai Mm -hmm. or about multiple universes like it's a it's a particle that goes into space gets radiated comes back down and kills us all basically (laughs) how scary is that and we can't even see it um and then you also get something like jurassic park which i mean debatably it could be in a different universe but it's not saying that there are multiple universes but this that is meant to 
uh, say what could happen in our world that we currently exist in. The question is about like what happens when we play God. Um, right. You have also also Michael Crichton Sphere. I, right. I was a Michael Crichton nerd when I was a kid, so I read like all of his books. And Sphere. that the virus thing that he did too. Uh, virus i think it was called yeah the, the, <laughs> that one, the one with that dustin one hoffman going get me that monkey yeah or like uh, <laughs> they made timeline yep there you go timeline. Yep. Yep. a lot of good a lot of good michael Crichton books mm-hmm. out there that are not about ai or about multiple universes mm-hmm. the other the other uh definition or the other caveat you can put on that uh science fiction definition is the other thing is this the it the story is somehow grounded in technology or physics or science. Mm. Now they bend those rules a little bit. You can't. There's no such thing as warp nine, and there never will be. Okay, but you're not going. A wizard did it, mm-hmm. right? That's the other thing <laughs> is that <laughs> physics do exist. We just define them in a different way. Which is coming back to Doctor Who. A lot of people insist that that is not science fiction, and it's something called science fantasy. Because they do a lot of you know impossible things beyond physics, and so they you know, never explain that they what don't the really, sonic screwdriver does. The, one of the classic lines in Doctor Who history from year one is, "I'll explain later." <laughs> <laughs> Namely, when we're off camera and we we are yeah. going off script. <laughs> Top three science fiction movies or series. I like Interstellar a lot. Um, Star Wars, like the original three. Or, nice. the, or the middle three, I should say. The middle three. Uh, and then I can't think of the name of this movie, but I think it might be a horror movie, but it starts up, or it's a science fiction horror movie kind of thing, but like, I want to say it's Andromeda, but I could be wrong. It, it was, it's What's it about? No, you know what? I remember now. It's supposed to be the prequel to Alien. Oh, God. Prometheus? Prometheus, Ooh. yeah. I know it was panned, Ooh, but I actually I liked it. I actually kind of liked it. Um, and then once I found out it was a prequel to Alien, I, I liked it even more. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> those those top three are the ones. Um, I, I would say Event Horizon, but it had one of the most disturbing scenes that I've ever seen in my life. Oh God! Um, God. But I just like the the. To me, it's like the, the reason I like those is uh, those kind is that we don't need as humans to to push every envelope, and I feel like the, that's kind of like the overall thing, whether they intended or not. Is they don't need to. The Event Horizon didn't need to go all the way out there, but it, but it did. And it I'm paid, scared and to ask and it what paid it was. for it. The disturbing scene. Uh, it's really disturbing. Yeah, I know. No. Yeah. Like I, I don't I didn't need to see it. That's uh, okay. Yeah. Like, so if I watch it again, I know what part it is you and I don't watch it. that part. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no there's no need to be disturbed, you know. <laughs> but Interstellar I, I really enjoyed. You I put enjoyed that on it a, a t shirt. There's no need to be disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's unnecessary. <laughs> um, my top three. This was really hard. Um, I had to combine alien and aliens. I think Aliens is just like a hair better than Alien, but Alien was such a dang good launching point for the whole thing. They're both really ahead of their time movies, like diverse casting, female lead that's not like caught up on a guy for the entire movie, like just great. And scary monster, body horror. I mean, not really into body horror, horror, but like, I'll take it. It was scary. (laughs) Um, Let's see. uh, Let's back to the future. I love seen that so many times doesn't get old um and uh, picking a third one is hard i'm gonna go with interstellar um i wanted to pick another like comedy one and i was gonna say galaxy quest because it's kind of like a a spin Mm. on awesome movie (laughs) it's fun with uh, alan rickman and uh tim allen and sigourney weaver Uh, tony shalhoub tony shalhoub yes just a fun fun movie um i saw it when i was a kid and i was yeah just our my whole family watched it all the time 
Um, but yeah, Interstellar, like that's, it just kind of, it takes you out there and like having listened to, um, Star Talk, the Star Talk podcast episode about Interstellar is just like a whole nother mind blowing thing. Just showing you how much work they did, how much legwork they did to get the, the science fairly accurate, you know, mm-hmm. as accurate as they can within, while still keeping it, you know, palatable and interesting. Um, also recently, I mean, I haven't, I've only watched it once cause I think I can only stomach it once, but this one hit me hard. Annihilation. Yeah, that's pretty uh, good. With Natalie Portman. That's pretty impressive. Uh, oh my God, the soundtrack yeah. haunts yeah. me. I was I was skeptical. Scary. I was skeptical because it's a Netflix thing and the Netflix aesthetic is going on. But, but I walked in not knowing what to expect. I mean, you know, again, it's that Hitchcock thing, right? The scariest thing is the thing you don't see. Yeah. And oh, and God. I'm I'm picking as my number one, um, 2001. Nice. Still a classic. Still holds up. And. This is how a lot more science fiction movies should be. You don't explain everything. You, how could you understand? No, you don't need to. Right. No. How could you understand? Right. It's something no human has ever come in contact with in the case of Annihilation or 2001. How would you understand? Right. They're communicating with you on a level that's not that that if it really happened would be non-communicable to a film audience. So like, why should you show it? You know, show it symbolically or like, or like just have the final scene in that movie where she says like, who are you? And he just looks at her. You know, it's like, don't, don't explain it. No, done, good, right? That's, the story is over. You don't need to explain it. Yeah, sci-fi is one of those genres where I feel like it's perfectly fine to leave with more questions you than answers. You should. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like, okay, so, so it's like the Clark dictum, which you often hear quoted in science fiction these days, which is uh, any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. Right. Okay. You couldn't explain that, right? I mean, it's like I defend the movie Contact the 90s uh, movie with Jodie Foster. Oh, I'm reading that. To, to death. You know, a lot of people go, oh, it's a sentimental thing. And, you know, the, Ma- the Matthew McConaughey character is completely useless. I mean, I'll agree with that. I mean, what the <laughs> hell right, is this right, guy? Right. What the hell is this guy even doing in here? Because he, st- he was a new star at the time. Oh, yeah. Hey, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pun yeah. No, I realistically. Pun intended. <laughs> real- <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a supernova. Yeah, realistically, um, why is he in there? But in any case, um, you know, I liked the way that the travel was portrayed in that. You know, they just give her little glimpses of these. And you can tell it's an awesome civilization, right? You don't need to, like, go down there and look at the green people with the eyes on their heads. You don't need to do that, right? Um, yeah, so, and the fact that her entire travel just happened in a moment in time yeah, yeah, yeah. she's falling through the yeah. portal, basically. I mean, Carl, yeah. Carl Sagan wrote it, so it's pretty sound. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> scientifically. You, you can do the numbers and it works with EMC squared, right? Yeah. And, and again, with not explaining everything, there's that bit at the end where uh, Angela Bassett, um, you know, approaches James Wood and said, well, we've got eight hours of tape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's they didn't hammer it home, and probably some people missed it. But so what? That's yeah. the point. You know, you yeah. don't have to force feed it. Right? Yeah. Especially science fiction, which requires some imagination in the first place. So I've definitely got two thousand one. It's maybe maybe my favorite film of all time, or my favorite movie of all time is a movie called Brazil, which I think is still the best movie in my lifetime. Uh, this is a movie by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame. Yeah. Basically, the movie is Monty Python's take on 1984. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine. Michael Palin has an awesome supporting role as this guy who just goes to work and his job just happens to be torturer. 
Is a nine to five job is a torture for the state in the uh, what Ministry of Information? Oh, I thought you were going to say they're the Stanford experiments. <laughs> yeah, uh, the well, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just a business, right? It's 1984, right? So it's just official state. He's the official state torturer, right? He's one of them, right? And uh, just a really excellent movie, filmmaking at its finest. You know, it's got motifs, it's got metaphors, it's got you know just wide vistas and everything. And most famously. It was kept out of cinemas by distributors for a year because Terry Gilliam would not change the ending. They said, give us a happy ending or we won't release this. He says, don't release it. So at one point, he actually flew out 100 film critics to his place, did a private screening. Guys like Roger Ebert came away saying it's one of the 10 best movies of the year. Harlan Ellison, Harlan Ellison, who was a writer on TV, Star Trek, Babylon 5, he, went, he was the film reviewer for the LA Times for 10 years. He came back and said it's one of the top 25 films of all time. Okay? But the distributors wouldn't release oh it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> because insane. he wouldn't change the ending. Who ended and, up getting it? Um, well, it, it, Paramount kept it. Okay. You know, they did end up distributing it like a year later, but gave it no publicity. So, you know. It got nothing. I've never right? heard of it. And, and they, say, yeah. they say people with money uh, don't try to change movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they try and change the distribution of movies. <laughs> uh, so, so Brazil, I mean, it's a much forgotten movie. Please go see it. One of the best films of the 80s. Uh, I love Terry Gilliam. He's one of my favorite directors. Um, you can get this on Amazon Prime, I think. Ah, and if you collect DVDs, the Criterion Collection is definitely worth getting. You get a three-disc set. You get the happy ending version, which they showed on TV. <laughs> you, and you've got the making of uh, thing with like you know all of this battle going on between them. So really good to have that. Now... In third place, I don't know. I got a lot of possibilities here. I, I, I guess I have penciled in the Alien series, but I'm going to go even better than Rachel and say the first four. I love the Alien series until Prometheus. Wait, what, what are the four up <laughs> Okay, to so, so it's Alien Aliens, okay. Alien Aliens, and then Alien 3, but it's cubed. Right? So it's Alien yeah. Cubed. Boo. Which has... Uh, they should, they should have came swapped back for the one, S right? out for a Z. Sorry? Didn't Sigourney come back for the third one? Oh, yeah. No, she's in the fourth one, too. The fourth oh, one. Oh, which one's the one where they show the, um, the, the genetically engineered babies? I think that's four. That's four, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because three is three is really dark, and nobody really likes it. I mean, it's just set on this planet where all there are are a bunch of prisoners, but they have no weapons. <laughs> and the aliens are coming. Right? And that's it. That's the whole movie. Oh, so, that is dark and I'm, grim. I'm a sucker for movies where they tell you the hero is screwed at the beginning, and at the end, they're screwed. I'm a sucker for stories <laughs> like that. So Alien 3. And then 4 was the one with Winona Ryder in it, and uh, that's when they come back to Earth. It's directed by uh, Junet and Caro, who did Delicatessen. Oh. And, yeah. Yeah. What? And, it, and it's got Dominique Pinon in it, and it's got uh, Ron Perlman is in it. Like, all their favorite French actors are in Alien 4. It's Alien Resurrection. Now, what I liked about those movies is this. Different director, different writer, different cast, right? They kept three things through the whole series. The Alien, Sigourney Weaver, and The Company. And what they did every time is just change those things a little bit. Bam. Whole new movie, whole new vision, whole new feeling. I mean, look at Alien versus Aliens. You were just talking about, eh, maybe this... Look, the first one's one of the best horror movies ever made. The second one's one of the best science fiction movies ever made, right? But it's the same franchise. How do you do that? Yeah. You just 
new team every time. Just one of the problems with Prometheus is Ridley Scott never should have come back. Mm. Never should they should have given it to uh, and not James Cameron either. Just give it to give it to one of the superhero guys. Yeah, Joss Whedon. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Joss Whedon. Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. Okay, so I would put those in there. I mean, I like the Star Trek movies, and I mean, I think it's really important that if you think about it, Star Trek is the only, the only TV show that really made the translation to the movies. And still did something original. We mm-hmm. see a lot of remakes all the time, right? We see a lot of reboots all the time, right? I mean, I love the Brady Bunch movie, for example. But rarely is, a thing. <laughs> rarely is does a franchise, um, you know, grow going from TV to movies. And Star Trek was really the first one to yeah. do that. In fact, Star Trek, we can blame on a lot of these TV shows going to the movies nowadays, I think. It's all their fault. Yeah. But these movies are quite outstanding. And to tell you the truth, I'm not a very good Trekkie because I can't stand the original series. <laughs> I think it's brutal. I can't stand it. But the movies are amazing. The movies with Kirk and those guys are amazing. Well, speaking of TV to uh, movie that did, worked well in the vein of Star Trek was uh, Serenity. I was oh, just yeah. going to say Serenity oh, is kind yeah. of a... Yeah. Well, Firefly is one of the greatest science fiction series ever, and it was one series long. You know, and The problem yeah. with that movie is it doesn't stand alone. You have to be yeah. a fan. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to get that for a minute. But the movie's awesome. But uh, that series... I mean, one of the biggest mysteries of all time is how that series ever got canceled. How did Fox... I mean, they told Joss Whedon, give us Star Trek but not Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And he did exactly that and still they didn't get it. It's like yeah. cowboys and, and spaceships. How do you lose? But, but you know what? You know who they gave two, oh my, two seasons to? You know who they gave two seasons to instead was uh, Seth MacFarlane. Uh, for the series. Oh, oh, that sci-fi and series. And I watch it too. I don't remember the oh, name. Oh, the Orville? The Orville. Oh, I can't stand that. But but they gave him they gave him two series. Oh, yeah. And you know what I think it is is because Seth MacFarlane makes more money for Fox than Joss. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, probably what it yeah. was. I, I, Jaws came in so young, and he was so successful with everything he touched immediately. I think a lot of people resented it. Buffy, Dollhouse, you know, everything he touched turns to gold for a while. Yeah. There, you know, and I just think they resented so much success so quickly. You know? Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is this, too. I just wanted to say that I'm not completely without a sense of humor with my Star Trek fandom. I can't stand the Orville, it's true. <laughs> and I couldn't stand Calypso, the episode of, you know, Black oh, Mirror. Oh, USS Callister. But, but, oh, sorry. That's what it was. I was like... Sorry, yeah, Calypso was that a... That was a short treks from Star Trek, actually. But but I will say this. Galaxy Quest is hilarious. I love, love Galaxy it. Quest. Love it. And if it you was, haven't seen it... It, Give it a and watch. It's actually like pretty respectful of Star Trek fans too. They don't yeah. go that geek route that no, they so no. often do. There's even a black person in there, Dwayne Chill Mitchell. His <laughs> first feature film debut was House Party. Nice. Uh-huh. And Alan Rickman's in it. Yes, Alan Rickman. That's Alan always Rickman. And you can watch it with your kids. And Enrico Colin, whatever, from Veronica Mars, who's a phenomenal actor. Mm. This has been the MacGuffin Report with Rachel Wong. Oz Davis, Walter Hall, produced by Inclusive Media.